All right, well, good morning, church. Hey, listen, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Will Franco, and I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Wheaton Bible Church. It's so good to be with you here again. And I just want to take a quick moment and say hello to our East Worship Center, to our traditional service. We love you guys, and even though I'm here physically, I'm with you in spirit. So I just want to say hello, and uh, we love you. And listen, if you're new here, uh, you have no idea, like I said, who I am. And so if you want to come up at the end of the service, I would love to just shake your hand and personally welcome you here this morning. We want people who are uh, experiencing and exploring Christianity to know that they are welcomed here. And uh, we're glad that you are checking us out this morning. Now, this morning, as you can tell by the screen here next to me, we are continuing our series entitled Restored. And what we are doing in this series is we are working our way through uh, the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah. So what we're going to do this morning is the chapters we are going to be looking at, if you want to be turning there in your Bibles, is we are going to be looking at chapter 3 and chapter 4 of the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3 and chapter 4, okay? Now, as you turn there, let me kind of set the stage a little bit. Uh, This morning, what we're going to be addressing is we are going to be addressing the mission that God has given all of us to partake in. And by all of us, I mean the people here who have placed their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Like I kind of mentioned already earlier, if you're here this morning and you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, we are glad you are here. If you're here at Wheaton Bible Church and you are investigating Christianity, trying to figure out if this whole Jesus thing is for you, this is a safe place to do just that. But this morning, I want to speak specifically to the people here who have already placed their faith in Jesus, to the people here who have said, I am a follower of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And and if you are new here and you're kind of new to the whole church thing, the whole Christianity thing, this is an opportunity for you to get a sneak peek into what it means to be a Christian. And so as you consider Christianity, you're going to get a good idea of what it actually looks like here this morning. And here's what we're going to discuss today from Nehemiah 3 and Nehemiah 4. Every Christian in here, every person in here who claims or calls himself a Christ follower is called to be on mission. We are all called to be on mission. I'll unpack that more in a little bit. But here's what we're going to discover. Even though we are all called to the same mission, we are actually called to different mission fields. Same mission, different mission field. Right? Even though we are called to the same mission, we are actually called to different ministries. Even though we are called to the same purpose, we are called to different people and places. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to unpack what that means. What does it mean to be on mission? That's where we are similar. And yet at the same time, have a different mission field where we are. That's where we are different. That's what we're going to be addressing and unpacking this morning. So what we're going to do is we are going to look at Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4 under two headings. We are going to begin this morning by looking at the mission. We're going to unpack the mission. And then after we look at the mission, we are going to conclude by looking at the motive, at the motive. Now, usually what we do here is we read through the passage before we jump in. But this morning, because we are looking at two really, really long chapters, what we're going to do is we're going to read parts of the chapters as we go. So what I would actually recommend, if you are able and willing, uh, I would love for you to this week take time to read through Nehemiah chapter 3 and 4. Don't do it now, okay, because you need to pay attention to me. But when you, are, when you get home and you got time, 
go ahead and read through it, because like I said, we won't have time to read through all of it here. We're only reading parts of it this morning. So like I said, we're beginning this morning by looking at the mission. And what we're going to discover today is that the mission that God calls us to, there are three things that we need to know about this mission. We're going to begin by looking at the clarity of the mission. Then we are going to look at the diversity within the mission. And then we're going to conclude this first point by looking at the adversity against the mission. So the clarity of it, the diversity within it, and the adversity against it. So I want to begin by looking at the clarity of the mission. Look what it says here in verse 1 of Nehemiah chapter 3. It says, in my, by the way, I'm going to just butcher these names, so just so you know ahead of time, uh, it just, just FYI. Okay, so uh, verse 1, it says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and what? Rebuilt the sheep gate. Then in verse 3, it says, the fish gate was what? By the sons of Hesanahah, um, <laughs> there's a lot of A's in there. Uh, they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Then in verse 4, uh, Miramoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakuz, uh, repaired the next section. Next to him, uh, Mishalem, son of Berechiah, uh, the son of uh, uh, Rumpelstiltskin, um, uh, made, what is it here? Made what? Repairs. And next to him, Zaduk, son of Bana, also made repairs. So what you see here as, as, we, as we work our way through um, these first few verses, I actually, I just stopped here. There's way more of this as we read through. But one of the themes that you should be seeing as we work our way through this is that you see they rebuilt and they repaired. They repaired and they rebuilt. So what I need you to see here is that in this passage, they, they have a crystal clear idea of what God is calling them to do. All these people are here together, and they have a clarity of mission. Their job is to rebuild and repair the walls of Jerusalem. There's a clarity of mission. And so even though these individuals play different roles in society... Even though they play different roles, they are brought together by the same reason. One of the things that stands out to me, and I can't really get into it today, but there are multiple challenges that they have to overcome. But the reason why they can overcome these great challenges is because they have a great calling on them. The great calling helps them to overcome the great challenges. They have a great calling from a great God, which then helps them to overcome the great challenges. One of the things that happens later on in the passage is uh, the, the author, Nehemiah, he says that the people worked with all their hearts. They worked with all their hearts. Now, for us, that means, okay, that means they were just trying really hard, right? But the reason why that's such an important word in the Hebrew is because the word, when we think of heart, right, we think of emotion, we think of feeling, we think of romance. But in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew word heart, had much more meaning to it. it. The heart was the core of your being. It was the center of your person. In other words, when the Bible uses the word heart, it's describing not just your emotion, it's describing your, your thoughts, it's describing your will, it's describing your desires. These people had such a clarity of mission that they were able to give themselves over to it with all their person. 
Here's what I would argue is happening, though, in our day. One of the things that we struggle with is that there isn't so much a clarity of mission in the Christian church today. All of us have a mission, right? The problem is that many of us are not on the same mission. And so what happens is the lack of clarity results in Christians all on mission but trying to accomplish completely different missions. That's what the danger is. I heard this week that a uh, distracted church is a divided church. We're distracted. We all are convinced we have a mission. The problem is that for a lot of us, it's not the mission that Jesus gave us. Jesus says in Matthew 28, as he leaves, he says, go and make disciples of all nations. The last thing the guy said, it's pretty clear. I don't, I, it's, it's right there, right? Don't even have to know the original language. It's pretty clear. Go and make disciples. Here's the issue, though. There are Christians that fall into the trap of thinking, oh, no, my mission in, on earth is to promote a political party. I'm here as a Christian to get the right person in office, to get the right law passed. Listen, there's nothing wrong with politics, but that's not your mission. Some people are like, no, no, I, I, my thing is not necessarily politics. My thing is uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, my homeschooling. I'm here to promote homeschool. Everyone's got to know about this. Right? Or, 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 or this is a huge idol in Christianity. It's all, it's all, my, it's all about my family. I'm here. My, my Christian life is all about my family. Look, your family is a great thing. It is a gift from God. There are actually ministries called Focus on the Family. Nothing wrong with that ministry. The issue is that's not what Jesus is telling us to focus on. And, and what happens is we get distracted. Here's the other thing. Another thing that can distract us is whatever ministry you're passionate about. Maybe you're passionate about children's ministry. Maybe you're passionate about women's Bible studies. One of the things that we can fall into if we're not careful, one of the traps we can fall into is we can, can, we can focus on our ministry instead of on God's mission. Your ministry is great. And your ministry is helping you accomplish God's mission. But your ministry should never be an end in itself. And that's the danger. It's the, the lack of clarity results in mission drift. My prayer for us as we seek to be disciples of Jesus here in DuPage County and in Cook County where Tri-Village is, is that we would be a church that is focused on the mission that God has given us. That the clarity of mission results in efficiency in our mission. Okay? So that's the first thing that we need to learn about the mission. The second thing, though, that we need to see about the mission is I want us to see the diversity. We've seen the clarity of the mission. Now I want to look at the diversity within the mission. Look what it says here in the next section. It's actually the same verse I read earlier, but I'm highlighting a different part. It says, Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priest went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. So one of the things that we see is that there's clergy working on this wall. Then it says, Uziel, son of uh, Heraiah, uh, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. 
uh, Shalom, the son of uh, Halohesh, uh, ruler of a half district, there's even politicians involved, of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. There's men and women involved. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Benai. See, what, what I want you to see here as I read through this is I need you to see that even though there is a clarity of mission, there's also a diversity within the mission. Here's what's, what's beautiful about this. These people are rebuilding the wall in order to restore the identity, the security, the community of, of Jerusalem, right? But what's, what's beautiful is that God sends out different people from completely different walks of life. We see people of different genders. We see people of different classes. We see people of different vocations. We see people of different tribes because it says here that the Levites were working on a section. All these people working on the same exact thing. Working on the same exact thing. And so one of the things that we have to understand is that if we are going to be the people that God is calling us to be, God's not calling you to forget who you are. He's actually calling you to bring exactly who you are with you because you are needed in this place. Listen, if Wheaton Bible Church is your church home, you are not here by accident. You have been brought here by God with a specific background, with a specific testimony, with specific experiences, with a specific mission field, and you are needed in this place. And so when you choose to sit it out, I'm going to sit this one out because I got a lot of stuff going on right now. You actually are hindering what God is trying to do here in our church. Because God has a call not just for us in general, but for you in particular. Here's what I love about this. The work is so big that everyone is needed. The work is so big that they have to have all hands on deck. If you notice, it doesn't just end at verse 1. It doesn't just say, hey, uh, the clergy did all the work. Right? Does that say that? No. The clergy were working, but they were not the only ones working. And one of the things that we have to be aware of, one of the traps that we can fall into, especially in American evangelicalism, is that the clergy do all the work. We pay you to do ministry. So go do it. And here's how we think about evangelism. We think, man, if I can just get my neighbor to church to hear my pastor preach, if I can just get my cousin to church, if I can just get my coworker to church, listen, there's nothing wrong with that. But if you're not careful, one of the lies that you may be believing is that the only person that can do ministry is the pastor. That's not biblical. As a matter of fact, Martin Luther, uh, the German one, not the black one, uh, Martin Luther, uh, one of the things that he did that was just extremely important for the church today is he went and fought against the dualism that was happening in the Catholic church in his day. He saw the dualism. And here's what I mean by dualism. The clergy were the only ones that really knew how to read scripture. The clergy were the only ones that really did ministry. And Luther came across passages like Ephesians chapter 4, and where, it, where it talks about how God has given us uh, evangelists and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. God has given us all the church leaders in order to equip the saints for the work 
of the ministry. So get this, one pastor, J.D. Greer uh, from North Carolina, he says that, he tells his church, in light of Ephesians chapter 4, if God has given church leaders in order to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, that means when I became a pastor, I didn't join the ministry, I left the ministry. Because now you do the ministry. My job is to equip you to do the ministry. But it's just, we're so quick to forget that, though. And we're so quick to, to lose sight of that. And one of the things that I love here in the passage is that you see the people working shoulder to shoulder. And so on the one hand, there's equality, right? When it comes to the, the work of Christ, the gospel, and when it comes to the work for Christ, the mission, we are completely equal. Because of the work of Christ, we're completely equal. And then now in the work of Christ, we're also completely equal. Why? Because it says that they were working shoulder to shoulder. The clergy were next to the goldsmiths. The goldsmiths uh, were next to the politicians. And they were all working shoulder to shoulder, the passage says. So on the one hand, there's an equality when it comes to the mission of God. But here's the other thing, though. There's also an accountability. There might be an equality, but there's also an accountability. Here's why there's an accountability. Because scholars say that the part of the wall that the people were working on was the part that was directly in front of where they lived. So don't miss that. So the priests were working on the sheep gate because that's the gate that was right next to the temple. And so what scholars say is that the, the people worked not just on any part of the gate, but get this, they worked on the part of the gate that was, or the, the, the part of the wall, or the part of whatever, whatever it was, a gate or a wall, depending on where they were, they worked on the part of the wall that was directly in front of their residence. So on the one hand, there is equality in the mission of God, but get this, there is also accountability. Listen, as we promote and build the kingdom of God, as we do the work that God has called us to do, God is calling you to do not someone else's work, not another part of the wall. God is calling you to build the part of the wall that's directly in front of you. And if you don't do it, people will know. If someone wouldn't have done the work there, it would have been obvious for everyone because that would be the part of the wall that wasn't built yet. And that's why this is so important. As a matter of fact, in the passage, we're told that there were some people that did more of the work, right? They, they, they overworked. There were some guys who finished their part of the wall, and then they went to help others. And then there was others. It said that the, some nobles, there was these wealthy fellows who refused to be a part of the work. It says that they refused to put their shoulder down into the work. Another way to put it in Hebrew is they were stiff-necked. That's where we get the phrase stiff-necked. They were stiff-necked because they refused to bend down to do the work. They did not do the work that was in front of them. But you know what I love about that? One of the things that we need to be careful of is that these, those individuals in particular did, did not do the work at all. But then you have the, the, these other guys who did their wall and then another part of the wall and then another. They, they were helping everybody because they were so passionate about the work that needed to be done. One of the things that we have to be careful of, guys, is we, we can easily compare ourselves with others and we can say, well, I've done this much work and I'm going to stop here because that person's only done that much and that person's only done that much and that person's only done that much. And so I'm good. Even though you are capable to do more, give more, serve more, I'm doing more than my neighbor. I'm doing more than the person next to me in the seat. So I'm going to just finish up here. 
But what we see is that different people, because of their capacity, did a different level of work. And so if, the, if your standard for how much you do is your neighbor, I don't think that's how God wants you to look at this. So, so think about this. If you have, so, so, there's, so there's the equality, right, because they're all shoulder to shoulder, but then there's the accountability because they all have a certain section of the wall to do. What I don't want you to miss here is that one of the things that we fall into is the very thing that Martin Luther fought against. We fall into dualism. And one of the things that we can believe, one of the lies we can believe if we're not careful is that the only time something sacred is happening in my life is when I'm reading my Bible or at church. That's not biblical. God does not, Scripture does not preach dualism. Your whole life is sacred. One of our values is that we are called to all the time ministry. And so whatever part of the wall is in front of you, get this, that means that if there's a certain wall, part of the wall you got to build, that means that there are certain non-Christians in your life and you're the only uh, Christian that they know. That can be in your neighborhood. That can be in your workplace. That can be in your family. That can be at your gym. But there are certain people in, uh, that are set before you. Remember, the only work you got to do is the work that's in front of you. Don't worry about everybody else's job. The work that's in front of you. And you are to live out and share the gospel with those people. Those are the people God's going to hold you accountable for. That's why this is so crucial. Because the mission of God, there's equality, but there's also accountability. One of the stories that I came across this week that I think is just so encouraging, we have a, a, a woman at our church, her name's Caitlin Segura. She's actually one of the elder's wives. And uh, one of the things she does is she, she works as a REMAX uh, real estate agent. And she sent this, this email to us because she knew we were preaching on this. And essentially her story was this. She said, look, um, for a long time, I just saw my job as a paycheck. We needed the money. I went to work. I brought a check home. She's like, but what started to happen in me as I started to realize this value of, of priesthood of believers that we are all called to all the time ministry, I started to realize that, wait a second, no, no, these individuals are people made in the image of God in need of a savior. And I might be the only Christian they'll ever come across. And these people are moving into my community and I am stepping into their life at a very important intersection of their life. And she says that what started to happen is she started to change her view of her job and she realized that the sacred didn't just happen on Sunday, it happened on Monday through Friday. So we've seen the clarity of it. We've seen the diversity within it. And the last thing I want to see here and, and, and look at is I want to look at the adversity against it. The adversity against it. This mission had a lot of adversity against it. Now, before I read it, I, I want to I pause here for a second. I would argue that the greater the work you are doing, the greater the opposition you will experience. Let me say it again. The greater the work you are doing, the greater the opposition you will experience. And some of you are like, man, I don't know what Will's talking about. I haven't experienced any opposition. Well, it might be because you're not doing the work. Did you notice in the passage that the enemies that show up in Jerusalem only show up when they start doing the work? When, when Jerusalem was laying in ruins, they had other stuff to do. It's when the walls start being rebuilt that they show up. And some of you are like, man, the enemy hasn't opposed me at all. Well, why would he? You're not doing nothing. See, one of the things that we forget about Satan is that Satan is not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. He's not God. He has limited resources. 
So why would he waste resources on someone who's not doing anything? That's, that's the thing, right? That's, that's the reality. I, I heard someone put it this way. Before you came to know Jesus, you only had one enemy. His name was God, and he loved you so much that he sent his son to die for you. Once you come to know Jesus, you have three enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And they all want to destroy you. Oh, and the flesh. I'll throw another one in there. There's four. So, so, so the opposition only shows up when the work begins. Okay? Don't, don't miss that. But the first thing I need you to see is that th- there is external adversity, and then the external adversity results in internal adversity. Look at the external adversity. It says, when Sanballat heard, this is chapter 4 now, when Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly inc- incensed, and he ridiculed the Jews. It says, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Then he says, will will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? And can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Now, I want you to see the external opposition that these people are experiencing. He comes after them, Sanballat, he comes after them verbally, and he attacks two things. He attacks their identity and he attacks their ministry. Don't miss that. He he goes up to the Jews and he describes them as feeble Jews. The word there, feeble, means weak. It means fragile. Now, why is that important? Because he knew that that's actually what they thought about themselves. It's been years that they haven't had a wall. And so he shows up and he calls them exactly what deep down they believed they were. It was so fascinating to me is that the same way that the enemy was attacking them is the same way that the enemy still attacks us today. That's what he does to Adam and Eve in the garden. He goes after their identity. Are you really who you think you are? Does God really love you the way he claims he does? And listen, listen, whatever it is that you wrestle with, whatever it is that you, I mean, I'm I'm a bad mother. I'm a bad father. I'm not a good husband. I'm single because no one loves me. God has abandoned me. Whatever it is that you struggle with, you better believe that's where the enemy is going to attack you. He calls them feeble because that's what they already believe. He goes after their identity and they start to not see themselves the way God sees them. He start, they start to see themselves the way the enemy sees them. But he doesn't just attack their identity. He also attacks their ministry. He says, are you actually going to do this? Can you actually do this? I would argue that with both of them, here's a trick, all right, just for some of you who, I spent a lot of my life, Christian life, because of the person I was before I came to Jesus, I spent a lot of my life with a lot of shame and guilt that the enemy would come after again and again and again. And for the longest time, when he would come after my identity, and when he would attack my ministry, I would defend myself. I'd be like, I'm not that bad, and I could do that, and I can do that. And then one day, just through the Holy Spirit, God taught me, listen, don't disagree with the enemy. Agree with him, because I am a nobody. I am a sinner. I can't do ministry. But guess what? I have Jesus, though. And because I have Jesus, I actually now, instead of fighting Satan, I actually let him remind me that I can't do it by myself, and I go right back to the cross that saved me. Am I preaching yet, or is it too early? Is that that what it is? Okay, I just want to check. So that's why this is so important. 
We need to understand that that's how the enemy attacks us. And then what's crazy is that the external attack then all of a sudden becomes an internal attack. The the external adversity becomes an internal adversity. He says, meanwhile, listen to this. The people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Then the Jews who lived near uh, near them came and told us, ten times over, wherever you turn. They will attack us. The external adversity becomes internal adversity. Listen, after a while, we, we, have, we have so believed the lies of the enemy that many of us, we don't even need the enemy to come say anything to us. We, we beat him to the punch. Oh, I'm, I'm terrible. Oh, I can't do it. Who cares about the ministry I'm doing? God doesn't need me. I'm a terrible person. Look, I don't even read all the time. I don't even pray all the time. Many of us disqualify ourselves. It says 10 times over. Many of us, if we're honest, we hear you're a failure, you're a nobody 10 times over. Every day. In every area of our life. We don't even need the enemy anymore. Sometimes we are our worst enemy. But you know what's beautiful about this passage? The reason why the enemies could not touch them, the reason why the enemies could not do anything about what they were doing is because in the passage, get this, they are sent with the authority and the resources of a king. Right? The, the reason why the enemies can only ridicule is because they can't attack because they know that they have been sent with the authority and the resources of a king. And you know where I'm going with this, right? That, that as the enemy attacks you, as the enemy comes after you, you need to understand that there's only certain things the enemy can do to you because you have been sent and you have been given the authority and the resources of not a pagan king, but of the king of heaven. That's what we've been given in Jesus And our job is to just remind ourselves who we are, to be reminded again of what he's done. Amen? All right. So we've seen the mission. And what I want to do to conclude this morning is I want to look at the motive. The motive. You know, hopefully by now you have a better idea of the mission that God is calling us to partake in. Right? Right? We, we've seen the, the clarity of it, we've seen the diversity within it, and we've seen the adversity against it. But there's one thing that I haven't addressed yet. We haven't addressed the why, the, the motive. We, we've looked at the mission, but we have yet to address the motive. We've looked at the what, but we have yet to address the why. Here's the thing. I would argue that in this passage, there are three motives that motivate these people to do the work that they do. Follow me here. They are following a good leader, Nehemiah. They are doing a good work, the rebuilding of the wall, in order to be God's good people. Okay? A good leader, a good work, in order to be God's good people. That is what's motivating the people in this passage. Now now get this. If that is what's motivating them, I would argue that you and I have been given a much greater motive. An infinitely greater motive. Motive, Because if what motivated them was a good leader doing a good work in order to be God's good people, then what we find now that we are on the other side of the cross, we have a greater leader who did a greater work so that we might be God's greater people. So, so let's unpack this, okay? You ready? Everybody say we're ready. Okay, so, so let's look at the fact that Jesus is the greater Nehemiah and he's also the greater leader. Jesus Christ is the greater leader. And one of the things that stood out to me this week as I was preparing for this passage 
is I was reading, and you, you would miss it if you're reading it in English, but as I was studying the passage in its original language and looking at the meaning of the different names, one of the things that surprised me is that each of the names point us to a greater leader, to a different leader. And it's not Nehemiah that they point to. They are pointing us to a different leader. So, so one of the names meets, here's what it means. One of the names that, of the people that's working um, at, at the wall, one of the names is the Lord has healed or Yahweh has healed. Another one is uh, Yahweh has heard. Another name is Yahweh has considered. Another one is Yahweh has blessed. Another one is Yahweh has ransomed. Nehemiah's name means Yahweh has comforted. And so we wouldn't notice if we're reading it in English, but what's fascinating about the Hebrew is that there's no Hebrew person that could have read this story and thought that it was Nehemiah doing the work. Because even the names point to someone else. And here's the thing, what, 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 what they see is that in this passage, God did all those things partially, right? God partially healed. He partially heard. He partially ransomed. He partially considered. He partially comforted because the work is temporary here. But what's beautiful is that in Jesus, the greater leader, the greater Nehemiah, what was done partially is now done fully. In Jesus Christ, we are completely healed. We are completely heard. We are completely considered. We are completely ransomed. We are completely comforted. That's what we have in Jesus Christ. That's, 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 that's ridiculous. And you, you, here's why Jesus is also the greater leader. Get this, okay? At the beginning of this passage, of this book actually, Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah, he hears what's happening in Jerusalem. And the passage says that he prays for the people. But again and again and again, Nehemiah uses the phrase we, we, we. He is identifying with the people, right? But what a lot of people don't know, because they only read the first part of Nehemiah, is that by the end of the book of Nehemiah, he's no longer praying we, he's praying I. He comes back from, from Persia, from visiting Persia, and he sees that all the work that they did was for nothing. And everything has been reversed, and all the people are back in their sin, back to how they were living. And at the end of Nehemiah 13, Nehemiah's like, you know what, forget about them. Remember me, man, because these people are a lost cause. Remember me. So think about this. At the beginning of Nehemiah's ministry, he is abandoning himself and remembering his people. At the end of Nehemiah's ministry, he is abandoning the people and remembering himself. But there's a greater leader. There's a greater Nehemiah. And get this. He was abandoned not just by a few Jews uh, uh, in Jerusalem. This, this greater Nehemiah, this greater leader, he, he was abandoned by his family. He was abandoned by the crowd. He was abandoned by uh, the disciples. He was abandoned by the Jews. He was abandoned by the Romans. He was abandoned, get this, by his father. And what's beautiful about Jesus is that unlike Nehemiah, at the end of his life, he's on the cross and instead of abandoning his people and remembering himself at the cross, he abandons himself and remembers his people. That's why Jesus Christ is the greater leader. But get this, he's not just the greater leader, he also came to do the greater work. And we see that he came to do the greater work. There's a few threads, there's three threads that, that run through this passage that show us that Jesus Christ is the greater leader who came to do the greater work. One of the things, again, that we can miss if we don't know the history of Jerusalem is that there are certain gates that are mentioned in this passage. There's two gates that are brought up in this passage that show us and foreshadow for us the work that Jesus was one day going to do. The first gate is the sheep gate. 
It's the first one you see in the passage. It's the, it's the gate that is the first one that's restored. The first part of the wall that's restored is the sheep gate. And the reason why the priests are the ones working on the sheep gate is because it was the gate directly in front of the temple. Okay? And it's the only part of the wall that is set aside and made holy, consecrated. The only part of the wall is the sheep gate. Why is the sheep gate important? And how does the sheep gate foreshadow Jesus? Well, get this. The sheep gate, hence the name, was the gate in which all the sheep came through. But it wasn't just any sheep that came through. It was the Passover sheep. One of the sheep that came through once a year was the Passover lamb. And one of the things that I learned, I, I read this a few years ago and was reminded again this week. You might not know this, but the, the shepherds in Jerusalem, get this, the place where the Passover sheep was raised, the place where the region where the Passover sheep came from was Bethlehem. I'm preaching. I don't know if you know it. I, I sent the email. I don't know if you got it yet, okay? But, but, but he, the, so from Bethlehem is where we get all the Passover sheep. So get this. One day, the greater Nehemiah comes from Bethlehem, the Passover lamb comes from Bethlehem to do the greater work. And that's why John the Baptist, when he sees him, he doesn't call him the son of God. He calls him the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But, but we're not done yet. It gets better. Everybody say it gets better. The, 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 another, the other gate that's there that's super important that we can read right past if we're not paying attention is the east gate. Now, the reason why the east gate was so important is because the east gate today is referred to as the golden gate. Okay? Now, the golden gate is crucial because in the book of Ezekiel, when the Jews start becoming sinful, which they were always were, but it gets to a place where God is so done. Then it says in Ezekiel that the glory of God leaves the temple. And get this, the gate that the glory of God leaves through is the east gate. Here's what commentators say that, you know what was east of Jerusalem? The Mount of Olives. The glory of God leaves Jerusalem through the east gate towards the Mount of Olives. Here's what's beautiful about the golden gate that points us to the work Jesus would come to do. This golden gate is the same gate that Jesus walks in through on Palm Sunday. And get this, it's the same gate that we see in Revelation. Jesus is going to come back, and that's the gate he's going to enter through. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives and go into Jerusalem through the Golden Gate. So get this, in the Old Testament, the glory of God leaves and goes through the East Gate. In the New Testament, the glory of God comes back and comes through the East Gate. That's crazy, guys. I might be the only one that gets excited about this. This is okay. It's just me and Jesus up here. We're good. He does the greater work. And then in Isaiah chapter 26, it's beautiful because in Isaiah chapter 26, we see that the walls of the future Jerusalem, it says, the walls of the greater Jerusalem will be salvation. One day, it says in, in, in Isaiah, is looking forward. He says, listen, the future Jerusalem, the walls of that Jerusalem won't be wood. It won't be concrete. It won't be steel. It'll be the salvation of the Lord will be the wall, it says. That will be the wall that surrounds us. Listen, Jesus came to bring the wall we actually needed, which is the wall of salvation. And Jesus, because of what he did, he protects us from the real enemy. Listen, our real enemy, our real threat is not Sanballat. It's not Tobiah. It's not the Romans. Our greatest threat is Satan, sin, and death. And at the cross, Jesus dealt with our real enemies, not our perceived enemies. 
In uh, Nehemiah chapter 6 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Um, Nehemiah's on the wall, and, and the Jews come, and they're, they're the, the, not the Jews, the enemies come, and they're like, come down. By the end of by Nehemiah 6, they're so frustrated that they just want to kill Nehemiah. They can't stop the work, so they're just going to kill the leader. And Nehemiah says to them, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Hey, hey come down. No, I, I'm doing a great work, and I cannot come down. But you know what? That foreshadows what the greater Nehemiah would one day do. We're told in Scripture that at the end of his life, Jesus is on the cross, and the Romans are saying, come down from there. If you really are the king of the Jews, if you really are the son of God, come down from there. And essentially, by staying on the cross, Jesus says, I am doing a great work, and I cannot, I cannot, I cannot come down. And then lastly... We have a greater leader who did a greater work so that we might be a greater people. You know, one of the things that I saw this week as I was studying this passage is that these people in this story had the same, had different statuses but the same background. So they had different statuses. There was clergy and there was laymen and there was men and there was women and there was rich and there was poor. So these people had different statuses but the same background. What's crazy is one day when Jesus would come to do the work that he did, he flips that. So now in the church, we have the same status, but different backgrounds. Same status, different backgrounds. How do we know? Well, in 1 Peter, uh, Peter is talking to us about who we are in Jesus, and he says you are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You are God's special possession. And then get this, he gives you the identity and then he points you to the ministry because he says you are those things in order that you may proclaim the glories of the one who called you out of darkness into light. Our identity leads into ministry. So Jesus flips it. So now we are the same in status, but we are different in background. Listen, what brings us together, what brings us together is not the color of our skin. It's not the candidate that we vote for. It's not the country we were born in. It's not the cul-de-sac that we live in. It's not the money in our account. It's not the family we were raised in. What brings us together is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same mission and we have the same motive. That's why we're here. Listen, to the degree that you embrace the gospel motive, to that same degree you will engage in the gospel mission. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, we come before you this morning. And we are so grateful that in Jesus we have the greater leader who came to do the greater work so that now we can be a greater people. And, Lord, we are greater not because we're special or because we've done anything. We are just as sinful, just as wicked, just as broken as the Jews. But we thank you that the new covenant is infinitely greater than the old covenant. And we are loved, accepted, and approved of, not because of us, but because of Jesus. Father, we are so grateful for that reality. We are so grateful for that promise. And God, I just ask that you would please do your work in us and through us, even now. Whatever, whatever you're calling us to do, we have the same mission, but a different mission field. We have the same purpose, but different people and places that we are to go to. Remind us again, Lord, that because the work is finished, ultimately, we now can go and do the work continually. Lord, we love you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
all God's people said.